Rise and shine, Mr. Freeman. Be careful of what you do. Big Brother is watching you. You say that you got me all in the mother. Rather than offer you the illusion of free choice, I will take the liberty of choosing for you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Hurricane Labs InfoSec podcast, episode 0.07. This is the Blurred Lines and the Murkiness of Cyber War episode. I'm Kelsey Clark, your marketing person. Robert Palsisco, network engineer. Tom Kupchak, uh, I do something around here. Neil Dasky, Splunk in the webs. And I just have to throw out a light disclaimer, since we are going to be talking about some potentially touchy subjects, that these opinions and words and whatever else is on this podcast today do not directly reflect the viewpoints of our beloved Hurricane Labs LLC. So we're going to just jump right into it. The big topic right now is social media and terrorism. So the big question is, what can or should internet companies do to fight terrorism? Can we talk a little bit about what's happening and why this is happening. So I think I'll start with an opinion we can all agree on. Terrorism is bad. I'm afraid. I concur. Okay, we're all on the same page. Let's move on. Basically, what's going on after the recent attacks in Paris and San Bernardino is that politicians and lawmakers are looking around for the best ways to counteract terrorism. So this has caused the bill of requiring reporting of online terrorist activity act to resurface. There are some concerns surrounding this. Uh, I'm sure on both sides. I don't know what what opinions do you guys have about this? So I think there's two kinds of terrorists. There's the good ones and the stupid ones. The stupid ones are going to be the ones like, hey, on Twitter, we're going to be terrorists tomorrow at this time and do this bad thing. And then they're the ones that usually get caught. The ones who are actually like good terrorists, they're not doing that. And unfortunately, what I've been able to tell is all these bills are just going to be able to counteract the ones that are obvious. Things that are being posted on Twitter, uh, other social media things, they're easy to catch in with means that they've already had for years. I don't think that implementing another law is going to be able to actually find any more information out. But that being said, there has been things that have been seen for different people who have done terrorist or you know, like some of the school shooting type things where having some insight into social media could have been potentially useful before it happened. But, of course, we're always looking at those situations with the uh, 2020 vision of hindsight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, plus also, I mean, at least it works both ways. So in the Paris shootings in Lebanon and being attacked, that you actually could get onto Facebook, for instance, and use their tools to tell that your loved ones are okay, you know, a little check mark. So it can help for actually spreading the word against, like, how to um, actually find the place, more to your point, Tom, there, of, you know, the the terrorists who say where they are and get after them that way, but also to reassure the family members. But one of the things that I think is, like, if the politicians actually push this through and, you know, make this bill become a law, kind of wonder, well, what does that actually do for the whole capitalist part of our government? That's, like, intellectual property that's forced to be donated, I would say, on behalf of Twitter, Facebook. There's many thousands of hours of development time, infrastructure, and training to use these different tools. And the government's just expected to get that for free, you know, because it's good for the better welfare of all. 
I guess the real question I have looking at this is if they are having companies reporting suspected online terror activity. What exactly is suspected online terror activity? <laughs> yeah, who's deciding I'm pretty that? sure we're all somehow terrorists based on, you know, anything we've ever done. You read one article on, like, I don't even know, but some kind of topic that the government decides is suddenly bad, then are you going to not be allowed to get on a plane again? And then think about all the different biotech type of devices that are being developed right now. Like, eventually, we're not there yet, but eventually you're going to get to a point where stream consciousness actually becomes a Twitter post. You know how awesome that would be if you could have a stream of consciousness? <laughs> Maybe not go to Twitter, but just at yeah. least into, a, like, a Word document or something. Then you could... You know, the that Google would be wave terrifying. is coming back, fellas. It, it would be terrifying, <laughs> but it would be awesome because then I wouldn't forget everything that I had to do. I think the problem also is that just just saying something isn't really a crime. It's it's a combination of a thought and an action. I mean, that's law 101, at least in the United States. Without that combination of something, unless you're going to completely disregard the uh, Constitution and the Bill of Rights, you need to have both of those things in order for something to turn into something that's illegal. Yeah, and even something that is illegal that is carried through, there's the whole issue of intent, too. Mm-hmm. Granted, I don't necessarily see cases where people are accidentally committing terrorism, but I could conceivably see that as something that could happen. Yeah. I mean, we try and curb that with some laws, you know, yelling fire in a theater or something like that. You know, you can get in trouble for that kind of thing where potentially you can do a likewise thing on some kind of form of social media. Yeah, like theoretically they shouldn't be putting you in Guantanamo Bay for yelling fire in a theater. No. You're not on the same page as, you know... uh, terrorist that's kind of, you know doing some kind of horrible thing but still it's an, so an act of domestic terrorism so. all right so we're going to make a threat map based on um different buzzwords to okay <laughs> this guy he said too many f-bombs he's definitely going to guantanamo well you, well, you just said bomb, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> oh shoot <laughs> oh, no. i think i think we need to keep in mind that what for example isis is doing with social media is a very widespread organized grouping. I mean, they use intimidation, coordination, secure messaging, etc. But at the same time, these social media companies, the promotion of terrorism is already against, you know, their rules and regulations. So I feel like a lot of them are saying that putting laws into place is not going to make things better because they're already working with law enforcement if they see these things. And if they don't, it would cause, I guess, further problems because they would technically be breaking the law. So there's sort of a mixture of things going on. Wasn't there also something in the news about Facebook actually shutting down some group that was identifying? Facebook was actually shutting down a group of individuals that was going out and identifying people who had ties to terrorism or promoting uh, like that kind of propaganda. And instead of shutting down the terrorists, they were actually shutting down the people who were against the terrorists, I think. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I thought I saw an article along the lines of that. But it, and it it's on the internet, possible. so it must be true. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> But it it does look like Wednesday the House did pass legislation requiring the president to provide Congress with the strategy for combating terrorist use of social media. But the other, like the actual bill for social media companies having to report terrorist activity, that's not passed yet, correct? No. Correct. Well, and it was obviously has to go through the Senate too, so it's it's not law yet. Right. But you, there's there's two parts to this, from what I'm gathering. You can tell that Robert he still has all that how the government works still fresh <laughs> in his head. 
The rest <laughs> of us are just like, no, it, it doesn't. Yeah, it's, something will happen eventually, and then there'll be election, and something else will happen, and people will uh, throw money around. And We're always speaking about money, right? And, mm-hmm. of course, right now, with all the political debates going on, they're all talking about their budget crisis. And um, if you look, cyber terrorism and cyber warfare, you know, just more as point, it's a topic. You go to, like, Chris Christie's page. He's got that as one of his hot items that he talks about. And he said, okay, we need to combat cyber warfare. Okay, well, it's the age-old question for all politicians. Okay, how, how? are you going to do that? <laughs> okay, give me, a, give me a figure. How much money? Okay, and then are you actually going to oh, um, be a homer, I guess I'll say in this case, of like, because presumably they're going to make some kind of pen test team or red-blue defense attack team. Are they going to use mercenaries in the sense of, you know, people from other countries? Um, is there going to be some collaboration between NATO, some joint and help in that way? I mean, I think these are all, you know, use every available tool as possible. But, of course, government involved, you know, they are a watchdog. So they're going to have to watch them watch themselves. This will be interesting because obviously in the various governmental and even business realms, as we're seeing, the I guess it's not really new, but the interest in attacking enemies rather than simply defending against them. And it's the thought of, I'm sure, quite a few people, whether it's out of frustration or fact, that there's no way to win cybersecurity efforts on defense alone, but there's the need to go offensive. What do you guys think? Do you think we should be more offensive uh, as opposed to defensive in our cybersecurity? I think we already are. I think we're naive if we're thinking that we haven't been. CIA, I'm sure, works closely with the NSA for these types of of counterespionage and activities i mean the the biggest one and you know that came up it didn't come out uh, but it's pretty much everyone knows you know we're disrupting iran's ability to make nuclear weapons or the stuxnet yeah i think it's a pretty much given that every nationality or every nation has has to be able to do this at some point i guarantee the united states does it yeah. i'm sure china does it i korea does it north and south probably so if we want to cross-promote a little bit, I guess, um, Madam Secretary, they had a whole big escalation to this. And it's like, okay, trying to measure an appropriate response to actually what they did. So if they invaded your soil, do you black out their entire capital? Well, it's just a new a new realm. We're, instead of using tanks, we're using botnets. That's definitely a murky area, like you're saying, because what actually constitutes an act of war versus, you know, a smaller crime or a nuisance. That's going to be interesting. Cyber seems to be uh, very vague. Think how much the war museums from this era are going to suck. Like, we get to, we get to <laughs> yeah. look at tanks and it's planes. Memes. It's and, all memes. And there's just going to be, like, you memes. know, a, a, a CD sitting on a, you know, a glass cabinet. Like, here's Stuxnet. Here's a Dell workstation from 2012. <laughs> Dude, that guy's getting a Dell. <laughs> well, so, oh, I have a quick question. Kind of cycling back a little bit. Eric Schmidt thinks that tools should be built to help de-escalate tensions on social media, like spell checkers, but for hate and harassment. I think what? it'd be nice if they just got spell checkers worked out first. <laughs> <laughs> Autocorrect, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> People would find a way to subvert that. I mean, it sounds great in theory, but that's kind of part of the whole altruistic society. Everyone thinks that everyone should do well, you do well, you do well, and together we're going to have a great community because of that. But people, you know, leet speaks out there and all kinds of, you know, make up your own language. There'll be ways to subvert it. It's nice Mm -hmm. in theory. 
Pat but realistically, the, the people who, you know, are the legitimate threats are not the ones who are just texting their terrorist plans to all their friends. Right. Those or are posting villains. on their Facebook wall, you know, <laughs> uh, like, hey, I just bought, you know, so much fertilizer from this company so that it could build a bomb. Those are the morons. Yeah. And I, it's great that we can stop the morons mm-hmm. because they still do bad things. But, like, your actual legitimate nation-state threat with people who are trained to do this sort of thing. They're not talking via Facebook messages. Yeah. They're do, they are doing other things that are more sophisticated. Granted, things that are encrypted, sure, they could come up with ways around that. And there's plenty of, you know, talk about the government having backdoors and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But there's so many different ways to communicate. And you just need to be one step ahead of the people who are trying to track you. Yeah, you could even track okay, this person X, he's suspected, he's communicating, and you might not be able to read it because it's encrypted, but, you know, you can just defer something, yes. To see who's going where. Based on times, where they're at, who it's to, how many, how big the packet is, so you can see possibly if it's an actual payload or if it's just text, plan. The time frames. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, but I I also don't want to think that just because, you know, some professional really good terrorists can get through the system that's worthless because if you're still stopping stupid people, stupid people still cause harm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's good. It's so there's, there's value too. I guess the, it's how much is gray and how much is black and white. You, you want to be able to set some sort of threshold, but who should be setting that threshold? Should it be the government or should it be the tech companies? Yeah, well, you just even look at the... Uh, as yesterday, as of the as of the recording of this podcast, the the threat that was sent to both New York and uh, one of the school districts in California for a mm-hmm. bomb threat, very very different reaction. Absolutely. New York was like, "Oh, this is BS," and California is they like, shut down "We the just cancel every class ever." Right. So, well, what what do you think about it? Um, obviously, a lot of people try and define it and quantify it. So, come up with some sort of policy, these types of words are not necessarily going to get you blocked because if you start trying to put here's the crime, here's the punishment and defining each and you'll be in litigation, you'll be trying to get that type of, but make more of a loose open type of policy of, okay, these kind of things, if you stick to not swearing and not not saying um, terrorist or bomb or something or like major capital cities, then, you know, your communication gets through without any problem. But if you start some some of these other things, well, it might be delayed a little bit because it's going to go through a manual check on a human auditor. The terrorist rubric, basically. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there you go. Anything like that that has some kind of like, you know, if you say this word so close to this word, it's just a flawed system because you can work around that. Mm -hmm. But I, I was thinking that was more not necessarily to catch terrorists so much as to be able to all those different plans that uh, metrics that you're trying to put in place to actually stop the terrorist or whatever well that's more for the common joe person stick to these types of rules and then we know we don't have to kind of go after and look for you at that point i mean you're never gonna catch everyone but i think that that gets uh the bulk yeah i can just see something like that i don't know so close like you could have an innocent person who has no ties to terrorists really easily Let's just say you Scooped say, up you know, that, hey, absolutely. I'm going to, I visited Washington, D.C. It was the bomb, you yeah, know, yeah, something yeah. like that. All of a sudden, you're <laughs> by that metric, you're a terrorist. Not necessarily, but you're going to be looked at at least. And by the way, we're all probably going to jail as a result of this podcast, just saying. Most likely. That's fine. Oh, my name's Robert De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time believing that just saying 
you know, like like that instance saying something was the bomb. I I feel like there has to be more going on than just that, but bomb, 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 bomb. <laughs> he hit airplane, he hit... <laughs> building, fruit roll up. Oh gosh, <laughs> keep that code word secret. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're bordering on any type of censorship, and that's scary, in my opinion. Americans really don't take well to that. No. I mean, well, I don't. <laughs> yeah, and there's the opinion that social media companies shouldn't have to take on the job of censoring speech on the behalf of the government. Plus, I mean, knowing specific phrases or specific images or whatever, they would have to train all these technical people who are not trained in terrorist activity. I mean, they're not trained in that. So, I don't know. There's a whole there's a whole lot of different levels that go on with that that make it more and more challenging. He's so. the core of how do you train someone. You mm-hmm. know, you, you can't train specifics, um, I would think. You know, you can't say Stuxnet happened exactly this way, so look for this piece of malware. You can, you can give generalizations about, you know, if you see certain size or oddly sized um, traffic for, you know, looking at patterns. So that's where the pattern matching comes in. That's where things like Splunk help that Hurricane Labs provides services for. Nice plug. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, there are things, I don't know whether this is just Facebook, I'm assuming, I mean, I know, I know it is, but I don't know whether it's across other... It's probably going to, like, Instagram, Tumblr, Probably, uh, but... Twitter. What's that? Oh, so you take a picture of a bomb and put a filter on it, I see how this works. Well... It's a sepia tone that really brings it. <laughs> there are databases, for instance, like with child pornography, there's a database that has known images so that... It's utilized for child exploitation scanning, but right now there's no database that's set up for terror-related images. So that's a whole other aspect that makes it challenging as well. Unfortunately, you you look at something like child pornography, and there's a there's sort of a set limit for how it's how it looks. Mm-hmm. I mean, take that how you want to, but terrorism, it it could be via in person of a vehicle. Um, a building, right. how, do you, how do you categorize that or take a, a specific picture exactly. that looks like that? You just look at legally how difficult it is to define even something as cut, seemingly cut and dry as child pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, the literal standard for that um, set by a Supreme Court justice was, I know it when I see it. Hmm. <laughs> that was basically the threshold test by a Supreme Court justice, Potter Stewart, in a court to determine what obscenity was. Mm. So, do you have to do the same thing for terrorism? You yes. know it when you're scared? I don't know. I guess my question is, why don't they just have enough, they just have to bring enough evidence, get a warrant, and then they can look at any of this, this evidence that the tech companies collect anyways. I just, I don't understand what the big problem is behind providing enough evidence to get a warrant. Well, unless I'm misunderstanding, isn't the warrant Aren't these government officials worried about encryption? I mean, isn't that because even with a warrant, you can't. There's no well, way you, to get around. A, a warrant's not going to break encryption, right? But I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to grab enough data in order to look at it before they even have a warrant, before they even specifically know what to look for. They're trying to look at everything. Well, one of the requirements for getting a warrant is reasonable cause. Absolutely, or a just cause. You have to at least have a reason for getting a warrant. You can't just be like, ah, Kelsey, I see you're here. I need a warrant. Well, that is just cause. But another, <laughs> like, just, you know, someone's walking by and it's like, oh, warrant, have, without having any reason for that. 
and and basically, I'm just profiling people with purple hair as being sketchy. In that's that case. fine. And that that's basically very similar to what there's all kinds of you know legal issues with that, where you say someone just looks sketchy, and you suddenly say that they're a terrorist because then you get into the racial profiling and all that is an issue too. Yeah. And then, of course, um, you're going to have to train the judges and, like, some people who are predispositioned to not liking a certain group or something like that. You know, it'd be hard to filter out those biases. The thing is, though, I, I know I used the, the Kelsey's hair example. Is That is something, though, that she can choose. She wasn't born with purple hair, whereas someone who is from the Middle East, they have no choice to be look like they're from the Middle East. So that, you know, not everyone from the Middle East is automatically a terrorist because that's not how it works. It's a very, very small sampling. Everyone with purple hair is sketchy. So that could be something that we could use as an actual test for that. Yeah, and that would have to obviously be subject to change because she could change her hair to green and we still got track It would still be sketchy. Yeah, (laughs) it would still be sketchy, but it's something that she can control. So obviously there has been more cases where Certain acts of terrorism are conducted by certain people, but that doesn't give you the ability to make a hasty generalization of everyone who is of that characteristic being a terrorist. Yeah, because we're, you know, it can be skewed just by going after the vast majority of people who, for instance, Middle East. So, (laughs) well, I was going to say you could use the term terrorism as you want, but look at mass shootings that there have been countless mass shootings done by white middle aged males. It's and young male, white males. So it's. Racial profiling is not going to get you there either. Yeah, Yeah, and for all intents and purposes, that's an act of terror. Mm -hmm. The school shootings that have been happening in the country all the time for no good reason, that is... It's terrorism. It's terrorism. And it's not, you know, ISIS that's doing that. I want to note, (laughs) Tom, I heard you say, you know, maybe it's relatively a small grouping terrorist-wise, but... Uh, and I'm forgetting, I'm going to have to look up the article on this, but the full extent of terrorist activity on social media, even though it's unclear, ISIS supporters used at least 46,000 Twitter accounts, possibly as many as 70,000 between September and December of last year. So it looks like, you know, they've, of course, got something to worry about on social media because that's quite a bit. I think Anonymous cleared that one up. I'm just wondering what, like, Twitter is probably just as bad as anything in the vast sea of garbage you'd have to go through to get anything useful out of yeah so there might be some value in you know trying to find the needle in the haystack but if if someone is tweeting about their terrorist plans just using twitter's search would work as well as anything else i'm not an expert so i certainly don't database dump or something to the government wouldn't help but i mean they could just go to twitter.com slash search and be like (laughs) type in terrorism you know (laughs) Unless anyone has anything else, it looks like we've, you know, covered a lot of the different angles and perspectives surrounding social media and terrorism, a little bit on cyber war, and let's see. I think you're thinking the internet's the backbone attacks and what that actually means. Yeah, and I, I suppose we could talk about that for a few minutes. I mean, mo- most of the sites kind of talk about... Um, well, if no one's claimed responsibility for it, it's hard to kind of track why it's happening. But the fact is, the internet did not go down. It with, withstood, you know, the 13 root level authorities being bombarded. You know, there was some performance degradation. Maybe it was just metaphorically a warning, be, uh, warning shot, saying, "Hey, we can we can do do this if we need to." And then some other organization say, "Well, 
you know, we can command that botnet. And then, then all of a sudden, instead of having Osama bin Laden, you know, a name like that, it's actually the specific zombie net. Okay, well, we, we can command this hitman right here to take down your website. So is this, is this attack something that, and we're talking about the 13 root servers that uh, from the Internet's DNS root zone, as, as Neil said, were hit by this. It was a DDoS yeah. attack, uh, DDoS. So is this something that's really major or is it something that journalists are kind of taking and running with? First and foremost, every day I wake up and I'm shocked that the internet works. <laughs> <laughs> Between DNS and BGP, I'm surprised nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, if someone actually wanted to take down the internet, this would be a good way to try to do it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, for someone who's trying to do that, it's designed to be so resilient that it's very hard to do that. So. Yes, we're saying 13 root name servers, but these aren't 13, you know, boxes in people's basements. Yeah, these are 13 huge data centers, basically. And they, there's not just 13 of them. They're, yes, they have an address, but that address is multiple geographical locations, multiple connections all over the world. So if you legitimately wanted to take down all of the DNS root servers, yes, you would break the Internet eventually if mm-hmm. you were able to take them all offline. But it would be really, really hard. Plus, also, then you don't you would you would stop basically resolving Google.com uh, if you knew the IP address. Where if something like this was happening, it's going to take some time. There's ways to fall back and still use it as a form of communication. And of course, you know we've all seen Independence Day. We we have other forms of redundant um, communication that we can use as a workaround if such an event even happened. And if they're using it, that means they're trying to take it down with itself. I think that's more for just getting fame than really trying to do something destructive. So taking down the root servers would purely make it not possible to resolve top-level domain authoritative name servers. So DNS servers wouldn't necessarily know where to go to, like, where .com's authorities is hosted, more or less. Mm -hmm. That's not something that I think changes that frequently. So caching would still be in play for a lot of that. Yeah, all the non-root servers would still have that information. Yeah, so yes, you could take down that and you wouldn't be able to get that information, but I'm sure someone somewhere would know what the IP addresses of .com's authoritative name servers are. Right. So then you go to, if you want to take down all of .com, you have to start attacking that. It's just the scale of trying to do something like this. Yes, you can make it more difficult to deal with and you can cause some temporary outages, but I think that there would be ways that we we would be able to adapt, and even if all the root servers went away, like today, it would probably take hours, if not days, for things to eventually time out to the point where things just grind to a halt. Well, so are you saying that we're so adequately reinforced in these areas that even though this attack happened, that there isn't really a concern about what this what extent this might go to in the future? I just think that. DNS is so critical to the operation of the internet and so ridiculously resilient that mounting an attack on something of this scale, uh, like the fact that this is happening and the fact that, you know, it was this widespread of it, even though it didn't really cause anything to happen, that's a significant stance that that happened or significant event. But the very fact that trying to actually do anything with that, I just don't know how practical that is. Mm. And, you know, you could be listening to this five years from now and everyone will be laughing at me for how ridiculous (laughs) these comments are. It's too big to fail. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, the actual power behind the attack was impressive. Against DNS, yeah, in its current state, that amount is not going to take it down. Uh, what I'd be worried about is if they started moving the attack to something else. Um, if you're really trying to break the internet, you're better off messing with BGP. Right. And you can totally break the internet pretty well by doing things with BGP. Yeah, a number of, of events happen every year where one central router or whatever on the eastern seaboard goes down or something. All of a sudden, every link between the two goes through <laughs> Kazakhstan. Goes through <laughs> Kazakhstan, exactly. Like I said, the the amount of computing power that went into this, obviously there's some sort of botnet or something behind it, is impressive. But um, against DNS, I don't think we have to worry about this attack actually taking down anything in the near future. So like the next five or seven days. <laughs> yeah, probably by a... Uh, after New Year or something, we'll start. By the time the again. podcast is posted, <laughs> this is no longer relevant. <laughs> well, I just have one final little thing that's going to go in the show notes. But as of, well, as of this article that was posted on December 9th, uh, Google's quantum computer is 100 million times faster than a PC. So for whatever reason, I was excited about that. I don't know if I actually should be. <laughs> no, you should. That's really. pretty cool. I mean, they've been talking I about quantum cryptography awesome. for quite some time. And, yeah. And then theoretically how to defeat it. It's impossible to defeat. Well, if you have some ways to subvert it to basically get the hash before the fact is that it's encrypted, there's ways to get around it. Raw computing power to decrypt it is not there yet. For all you gaming people out there, your laptop is just fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, unless anyone has anything else, I think that's about it. And thanks for listening in, everyone. Keep sending those Christmas e-cards. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.